Welcome everyone to another podcast from Shared Ireland. First of all, this will be a two-part podcast. Today we are continuing the discussion with a lady that will certainly need very little introduction. She is a current MLA and leader of the Alliance Party, Naomi Long. Welcome, Naomi. Thank you very much for the invitation. No problem. Delighted you could fit us in in this obviously very busy schedule coming up to the local elections. Absolutely. Everybody thinks we've got no work to do as MLAs, but I can tell you we're as busy as ever with the constituency stuff. You pile in an election on top of that and everything else and Brexit. It's pretty full on at the minute. I can only imagine. Naomi, first things first, if I was to say to you, can I have a B, please, Bob? How would you respond <laughs> to that? Well, um... I think you've been looking at Wikipedia and Guilty. I, I have to say that one of my friends who um, fancies themselves as a bit of a comedian right. um, had gone on and altered my Wikipedia page because I told them a story. Right. There was a myth that went around that I did blockbusters. Yes. I, I didn't. Oh. But this myth gained legs to the point where I started to doubt myself because I liked blockbusters. I watched it like anybody normal, but... I'd never actually written off to be on the show. Right. And for some reason, this myth that I had done blockbusters got that attraction. And I was saying to them, I said, had me almost doubt myself. I said, did I do? Did I forget doing it? Why is everybody think? <laughs> so this Hallion went on to my Wikipedia page and um, actually edited my Wikipedia page and put on that I had been up against, I was doing a gold run, oh the detail is spectacular. You just destroyed all my follow up questions. I, I, I want to clear all hairdryer, I mean that, a hairdryer, none of it's true. So what I would say is, if there's a lesson to be learned from it, it is fake news everywhere you look. And the reason I haven't gone on to edit it is because at the time there was a bit of a scandal about an MP who kept editing his own Wikipedia page to make himself sound better than he was. And so I was a wee bit worried of going on and editing mine mm -hmm. and then people thinking I was yeah. trying to big myself up. Yes. So I just kind of left it. But the number of times I now go to events and I get introduced and they mention this thing about blockbusters and then I have to explain I never was in Blockbusters. And that same friend this Christmas bought me the little mini table game of yes. Blockbusters yeah. for my Christmas present yeah. um, because he obviously thought this is hilarious still. So, so Blockbusters New Year's now synonymous. It is. I, I will never, ever live down the, the legend of Blockbusters and Bob Holness and the whole works. It will live with me now forever. So that's the way it is. Well, if nothing else, uh, Shared Ireland has got a, an exclusive now that we can yeah. dispel that, that fake news. <laughs> Very good. Okay, leading me on, Naomi. Um... I and many others that uh, kind of live on Twitter, I think we all agree that you are queen of Twitter Ugh. with your quick wit and comebacks to people. And I suppose I would only ask one thing from you today, if you could take it easy on me. Just <laughs> don't, don't, don't. I'll try. Okay. I'll please. try. Um, just while we're talking about Twitter, do you think Twitter has, is it useful for politicians in today's modern world? I personally think it is. I don't think that everything that is on Twitter is useful. I think that yeah. you need to get outside the Twitter bubble um, and check in with real life because mm -hmm. I think Twitter is a very specific kind of audience. I think 
a lot of people who are on Twitter, particularly those who engage, have already got very strong views and opinions. There are other people who kind of lurk and listen and watch. And those are the people, I think, who you influence by what you say and do. And these so-called trolls? Yeah, well, well, I have a collection of trolls, I have to say. I know most of them now by name. Is that right? Yeah, and when it all gets too much... The real name or the fake name? Some both. um, And I kind of mute them sometimes, you know, for a week or two just to give my headpiece and as much to give their headpiece as well. So occasionally I'll I'll sort of mute them for a bit just to to kind of let me get back on track again. Mm -hmm. But generally speaking, I think Twitter can be really helpful. It's an opportunity, as with everything, to connect with people, to talk to people. Um, I use Facebook a lot as well, and it gives you the chance to kind of put your ideas out there. But I must admit, my rule of thumb is that you really need to be engaging with people. So if you're going to post something online, you have to be willing to go back and engage with people afterwards. Otherwise, it's just one-way traffic and social media should be a conversation i think that's uh, one of the things that people will credit you with is that you don't just use it as a platform for making statements yep. you actually do take the bother and time and effort to engage with people that reply to you and i must say both negatively and positively yep. you don't seem to shy away from them no because I, I think if you're going to put your ideas out there they're going to be challenged that's the nature of politics yeah. oh, challenge to me isn't necessarily a negative thing yeah. i think if people are challenging and questioning your ideas it helps you refine your thoughts it helps yeah. you think through the consequences it keeps you sharp it does and but it's a good it's a good mechanism for me to hear views that i might not otherwise encounter so from mm. my point of view i find it useful i think an awful lot of people on twitter particularly politicians are all transmit and no receive exactly and i think that that is a weakness because it actually people go on twitter to seem more accessible and by not responding to people they actually seem more aloof Mm -hmm. so i think if you're going to use social media to try to be accessible the risk then that you have to take on board is you have to engage and sometimes the people you're engaging with are doing it just to wind you up or to pull your leg or to be particularly difficult. And I think Twitter can be great. It can also be, it can also be really difficult because I would find it quite a lot where somebody will take something I've said out of context. Mm -hmm. So we were having a debate the other day. It had been raised the issue about Irish citizenship and how British citizenship and Irish citizenship are measured in Northern Ireland Mm -hmm. and there was this discussion going on about the Home Office and how they will automatically assume if you were born and raised in Northern Ireland that Mm -hmm. you're going to be a British citizen yeah and we had that whole debate and then somebody came back to me just going you can't be British if you weren't born in Great Britain Mm -hmm. and I said well that's nonsense Mm -hmm. sent them a dictionary definition and said (laughs) you know it includes people in Northern Ireland any United Kingdom citizen is called British that's the shorthand you're referring here to the Emma D'Souza case that's right it was Emma D'Souza case but this was a kind of side thread that I was having with somebody else who was just arguing the point unless you're born in Great Britain you're not British yeah and I said that's not true that's factually incorrect so we had this kind of discussion sentiments and extract from a dictionary and all that malarkey and then somebody picked up on this kind of making out oh so you're saying then whether I'm Irish or not I'm British because of this and I'm like no 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 this is a side conversation that you have kind of stumbled on Mm -hmm. you haven't followed the thread that is not what I'm saying because it actually said in response to what Emma was saying that we have been raising this with the British and Irish government in terms of making sure that those anomalies around citizenship because some rights depend on residency and some don't. Mm-hmm. But those anomalies can be 
kind of ironed out in a way particularly because there's such focus on them now with Brexit, yeah. can be ironed out in a way that is consistent with the principles around the Good Friday Agreement. Right. Yeah. Um, so I wasn't at all saying everybody who lives in Northern Ireland should just accept their British and get on with it. That wasn't my that wasn't my point. But it's amazing how somebody can lift that tweet out of context that's and right. think that's what you're saying. And you then find yourself having to repeat. And I find it very difficult because I... I'm not unusual in that I like to get the last word. Um, people know it's a weakness. And so I want to convince the person that I'm debating with or whatever that, that I'm right. Yeah. Um, I, you know, they laugh at me. People will send me like those little memes if you know the person sitting at the computer and it's yeah, like, you're yeah, not yeah. coming to bed, know somebody on the internet's yeah. still wrong. Yeah. I'm one of those people. Yeah. Um, and I, so I, I enjoy the debate and uh, the discussion. Sometimes I have to step back and go, look, if you really want to know what I think about this, you need to read the rest of the thread because I, I, I think, can't keep repeating it I think over that's and over the key. again. Read the entire thread yeah. and then say something. Uh, yeah. yeah, but people will just say a tweet and they'll cut and paste it and they'll send it to somebody yeah, else. And, and it grows a life of its own. Yeah, yeah, and suddenly... And so I think politicians need to be careful because I think in 280 characters, you can't, you can't have a detailed discussion. Equally, if you say to somebody, look complicated issue would you email me people mm -hmm. then are going oh why are you ducking it why won't you that's say right. it in public right. so it's getting that balance right it's of balance, saying yeah. i'm going to go through this but it's a number of tweets and you're going to have to read them all to get my complete yeah. view on things you can never really avoid once you put your opinion on record you can never avoid it being taken no, out of context right. but it can come back to haunt people and i guess a lot of people have really damaged their reputation with Twitter. And deleted their Twitter account. Well, yeah, well, there's all that. There's deleting Twitter accounts, which in some ways I just don't... I mean, better off decide not to be an idiot on Twitter than have to delete the account. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's different people, different... I just think it, you need to try to engage with people. And I think you need to try and be as open as you can be. But you also need to bear in mind that there are some people out there who are just maliciously trying to pick holes in everything yeah, you do. That's right. And you can't really afford to let that grind you down either. Yeah. And I think a wee break of social media every so often Absolutely. does a world of good. For the headspace. Yeah, just mm -hmm. to get your head cleared, talk to some other people, you know, get, right. get out about. So I'm, I try now to restrict it to, I'll do a little bit in the morning to kind of respond to anything that's come in. Mm -hmm. I'll do a little bit in the evening just to yeah. kind of, I'll post a few things during the day, but I'll do most of my responses in two blocks. And that way it's not eating into my time. Because yeah. when you have it on your phone and you're doing your emails on your phone and you're doing everything else on your phone, it's far too easy to get like drawn okay. into a really long debate on Twitter and then look up and go, I had two hours of work there that I should have been focused on that I'm now going to be doing in my In you know, reality, my it, could, it can become an indexer, I suppose. Well, it can. And I mean, I think anybody who enjoys a good debate and a good exchange of views, you know, will, will find themselves right. getting drawn in because That's there's right. always a debate but, but somewhere the, the, on Twitter. The, the, the problem that I found was um, I was having a debate or a conversation, I should say, with um, somebody about a fairly, I suppose, heated topic. And then the next thing I seen all this person's replies to me getting a lot of likes and subsequently I found out later that he had several accounts and he was liking his own yeah. tweets and, and responding positively to, to his, his, own, his yeah. own. 
sock. This, this, well, that? that's another thing. I mean, there are people out there who have sock puppet accounts. I don't know why anybody has the time. Exactly. I have one Twitter account, yeah. and it's about as much as I can manage to keep it under control. Yeah. But there was one of the there was an MP not that long ago who was found to have a number of kind of fake Twitter accounts okay. and stuff to try and raise his profile. Yeah. There are other people who buy these kind of fake profiles uh-huh. in order to like up their their following and all this yeah, stuff. Yeah, I, I heard about a few of that yeah, as well. The thing about it is, I don't really go for the likes, if I'm honest. Yeah. When I'm on Twitter, I know that a lot of the people who will engage with me most will be people who don't like what I'm saying. If people agree with you, they might click, retweet, move on, whatever. Yeah. The people who will engage with you are either people who have a genuine interest in something and want to explore mm-hmm. it more, or who really don't like what you said or mm. want the clarification or whatever yeah. it is. So I don't think likes are the measure. I think, no. you know, it's about getting your views out there, yeah. but also it's about getting the responses. It yeah. is. Yeah. Um, so I would be more interested in whether or not I'm getting that feedback from people than yeah. whether or not people necessarily like what I say. We, we laboured um, pretty um, long here on Twitter, but I suppose <laughs> that's the medium that we'll be releasing this podcast. Of so course. I suppose of it course. is relevant. Okay, Naomi. You first held a political office in 2001, I believe, as a Belfast City Councillor, and in 2009, you were elected Lord Mayor, and I believe you were only the second female Lord Mayor at the time? That's right. I was the second, both actually from this constituency area, from um, Oriston, from East Belfast. Um, It was Victoria, it was called then, and um, both of us, uh, Grace Bannister and myself, actually both went to Bloomfield Collegiate School, oddly mm-hmm. enough, mm-hmm. Um, and were the only two women at that point who had ever been um, Lord Mayor of Belfast. Very good. So um, it was completely unexpected for me, I have to say. I didn't I didn't really grow up um, expecting that I would ever be a politician, yeah. that I would ever hold elected office, but I genuinely never thought I would be Lord Mayor because mm-hmm. in the days when I was growing up, the Lord Mayor used to get these large lampposts put outside their houses because they used to live in kind of, you know, big driveways and leafy suburbs Uh and all the rest of it. And I grew up in a terraced house in Inner East Belfast. So the idea that anybody from where I came from would ever be Lord Mayor with these fancy lampposts outside the house was was kind of, it was a bit bizarre. Um, But I I loved it. I had a fantastic um, time. I think it kind of broke a very long drought of women um, as Lord Mayor and since then we have seen lots more women in the main offices whether yeah. that is as Deputy Lord Mayor, Lord Mayor um, and so on, High Sheriff um, as well mm-hmm. and I think that's positive for the city to yeah. see more women in those high profile roles yeah. because again I think when women see other women succeed Absolutely. it encourages them to stand and to come forward and we do a lot of work in the party obviously we're very interested in trying to get women to get involved in politics i think it's important mm-hmm. um and a lot of it is about confidence it's about people maybe That's feeling right. that it's not for them or well yes i like politics but i could never do exactly that exactly right and it's about showing them that people just like them and I suppose you're, you're a role model in, in many regards to people well, as well. I would hope I'm at least an encouragement. Mm-hmm. Whether I'm a role model or not is a different matter, but I would hope I'm an encouragement to women who would like to do something about what's going on in their community, what's going on politically, what's going on even in their workplace, and yeah. they want to take a leading role, they want to show leadership, and they want to do that. And I would hope that the fact that there are women like me and many, many others about who are doing that yeah. is an encouragement to think, yet that can happen and also particularly I think to young women at the very beginning 
of school and their career you know when kids are starting in the primary school very quickly girls see themselves in a very different role to boys mm -hmm. they do they did a study of young girls at four and young boys and they would say to them imagine a person you know who is at the very top of their career like the mm -hmm. best surgeon or mm -hmm. the best lawyer or whatever can you imagine that person being you yeah. and they will say yes and only three years later when they're seven years old and they ask the same question, the girls generally say no. And so already they have started to see that is not their role, excelling in their, in their feet. And some of that will be fed without people realising mm -hmm. by the expectations placed on girls in the classroom. Yeah. So for example, one of the things that this study found was that in order for girls to score the same as boys, mm -hmm. they need to behave better. If boys are badly behaved but smart, so if they're disruptive but clever, yeah. they'll still score really well with the teacher. Mm -hmm. If girls are disruptive but clever, they do less well. Is that irrespective of whether the teacher is male or female? It is. It is. Honestly. Uh, yeah. And so the perceptions that people have about the role of girls, the girls should be quieter, better behaved, mm -hmm. more submissive yeah. in their role. Yeah. Um, actually affects girls performance because often what is disruptive behavior is are kids that have you know a lot of questions or want to explore right. things yeah. or, or do things differently so that can be sometimes challenging when you're managing a whole class Correct. but it counts worse against girls in terms of how they do in school and it's a it's a it's a subconscious thing it's not that teachers are have a conscious bias or anything mm -hmm. like that yeah. it's an unconscious yes. bias that they did in this study so i'm always really conscious of saying to young women you know yeah it, it is a subversive thing still yeah. to be a woman in a position of power or authority. Um, <clears throat> some people still find that difficult to relate to. Yeah. But that doesn't mean it's a bad thing. No. Um, it's a good thing. There should be, for me, I think that you need equal share of men and women in those places. You need mm -hmm. a good mix of people from different backgrounds. Yeah. The more diverse an organisation is, the stronger it becomes. Absolutely, yeah. um, and so I think it's important that we encourage women to have the confidence to say, yep, my voice counts. Mm -hmm. um, and so I got that opportunity very publicly, I think, in the role as Lord Mayor to do that. And I mean, you look around now and you see, you know, other women who have kind of followed on from that. I mean, Deirdre Hargis, the Lord Mayor at the minute. Yeah. Nola McAllister was Lord Mayor last year. Prior to that, um, Nicola Mallon was, mm -hmm. was Lord Mayor. So you can see that, you know, women are now coming through more regularly mm -hmm. and taking on those roles. Yeah. And those public-facing roles of leadership, which yeah. I think is really important. Of course. You have a degree from Queen's University in Civil Engineering. I did do. you ever practice? I practiced for 10 years. Oh, you did? Okay. I did, and I loved it. And I never really thought I would end up in politics because I enjoyed being an engineer. Yes. Um, I'm, I think by nature, I'm a problem solver. <clears throat> so when I see something that needs fixed... When I see a, a, an issue, my instinct is to tinker with it, to fix it, mm -hmm. and to look for a solution. Mm -hmm. And when I went and studied engineering, and you know, it was obviously a lot of it was you know logic based and all the rest, but a lot of it is problem solving. Yeah. And so I love that part of the work. I love the sense of achievement that you get at the end of the day when mm -hmm. you've gone in and there's been some issue, whether it's flooding in an area or whatever it might be, and you go in and you come up with a solution that's going yeah. to fix it. Yeah. So 
that part of the job to me just was really rewarding it also you work with a whole range of different people mm -hmm. from different backgrounds because you've got everybody from the kind of contractors who are out on site with you right through to um people who are doing the kind of research end of things and yeah. i kind of worked in lots of different spheres so i started in structural and um regeneration work then i spent a bit of time doing research at queens which was more computer based and yeah. tech stuff and then uh, the last five years or so um i work mainly um in sewerage and drainage lovely. which is lovely preparation <laughs> for politics but um i really enjoyed it um it was it was it was challenging work mm -hmm. um and it's technically challenging but it was also you got the opportunity to get out of the office yeah. and go out on site and to right. meet people yeah. and to discuss their issues with them and so in some ways a lot of the skills that you pick up as an engineer transferable. are transferable mm -hmm. ones very good i can see it's that. about engaging with people it's about um looking for solutions to problems although in politics it's a lot harder to sell the solutions I mean, i always say to people when i was an engineer and i found a solution to a problem and i took it to the boss the boss would ask me how it worked and i would show them what what the solution was and everybody wanted the solution so they were like great stuff perfect that's the you key know, everybody wanted the yeah, solution in politics everybody wants to they're not interested in the solution they're interested in who's to blame <laughs> And so you spend, it's the, no difference, it's the difference between engineering and, I guess, law. Um, law is about who's to blame. Mm -hmm. Engineering is about how do we fix it. And I guess politics is a wee bit, to me, it needs to be more of the engineering and less of the law. Um, but there's still that tendency for who's at fault. Mm -hmm. How do we lay blame somewhere else? And at some point, I think if you're going to get a solution, you have to park that and say, right, how do we fix it? Um, and so that's the bit of politics that I enjoy. It's the constituency work. Um, it's coming up with solutions. Even, I mean, I know that none of them have kind of got the traction we would have liked, but even in terms of the current standoff, you know, we've spent time working through how we think some of those issues could be fixed. Mm -hmm. And there's a satisfaction that comes from actually looking and saying this is how the system could work yeah you know, these are things that could happen and then actually trying to sell that solution to somebody else as a way of getting over the difficulties that they have mm -hmm. so i enjoy that challenge and i enjoy i guess i enjoy trying to get those solutions in place and to make people's lives just that little bit better it's frustrating at the minute because I think the solutions are out there, mm -hmm. but nobody's we'll touch on nobody's kind of grasping them. Yeah, we'll but I guess that's the difference between politics and you know working with people and working with lumps of concrete. Exactly, the concrete will go where it's told. The people will do what they want. Takes so a little bit of persuasion. It does. It does. Tell me this, Naomi. Was it always going to be the alliance party for you, or? Maybe had you another party in mind? Um, no, I mean, not when it got involved in politics, but it was not always going to be politics, obviously, because it was more interested in yeah. kind of engineering and, and science. Um, when it came to getting involved in politics, I suppose I grew up in a very traditional kind of working class unionist family in East Belfast. Mm -hmm. So my parents, I think, you know, they would have been very kind of traditional, mainly Ulster unionist voters rather okay. than DUP voters um, in the kind of 70s and 80s. And... I was kind of raised with not a lot of politics at home. Mm -hmm. A little bit. You couldn't avoid it. It was on the television yeah, exactly. with the troubles and everything else going on. So there was no avoiding it, but it was more politics failing than politics working. Mm -hmm. And I never really thought there was much point to politics um which is why i have a lot of sympathy Some for people, people. Maybe still agree with that. well i have a lot of sympathy for the frustration people feel with politicians now because it's it's 
it's a feeling that I really shared. Like back in the 80s and 90s, like I, I did not think well of politics and politicians. It just seemed like a load of people arguing to no avail on television and never getting anything done. Mm-hmm. I also grew up in what was quite a deprived community. I didn't necessarily see it that way when I was growing up and that I guess there was a wealth in that community that wasn't about money. It was about strong family relationships, strong community relationships. Yeah. And so I never felt deprived personally. Yeah. But when I look back now, we didn't have a lot of material wealth and it was quite difficult my mum my dad died when I was 11 my mum was a pensioner by the time I went to university okay. um, and was on a state pension so you know we went through the whole benefits maze and, and we struggled at times mummy worked part-time while I was at school um, and it wasn't an easy time yeah. for us kind of financially my dad had been ill before he passed away so again we went through all of that so it wasn't it wasn't that life was kind of all swimming, but for me, I didn't really see politicians in my neighborhood making any impact. Yeah. I didn't see them as a solution yeah. to that. And mm-hmm. so when I got, um, when I decided, to, I suppose, when I was at Queens and so on, I, I kind of, I didn't get involved in student politics because again, it was all these kind of baby barristers. Most of them are now in Stormont, I have to say, <laughs> um, as MLAs. But you know, bickering with each other at student council and all the rest, and it just did nothing for me at all. Yeah, yeah. It was just people pretending to be grown ups, mm-hmm. um, and there was very little way I could see any progress. What it did do, though, I was class rep for my class in in uni, so. I was our faculty rep and I used to go along and I was like the shop steward of the class. I would go along with my list of complaints mm-hmm. of what wasn't working and which lecturers didn't turn up on time and why the rooms weren't the right rooms. What lecturers didn't turn oh, up Oh yeah, time. yeah, yeah. Oh, right. we, were, we were demanding, like we were demanding and you know, we would say what we didn't like and what we did like and what was working and what wasn't mm-hmm. and when the move things we would complain. and. And they used to joke about me. I remember years after I'd graduated and had left Queens and I met one of the people who worked in the faculty office. And she said to me, I always knew you'd end up in politics. We nicknamed you the shop steward. And we used to watch for you coming because we were like, oh, what's going on in civil engineering now? Here she comes. And she said you would come in with your list of complaints about what had happened. So I, I always enjoyed, if you like, the activism side of trying to make yeah. things different. And I went to them with, problems and solutions so I went to them saying this isn't working but could we do this yeah which I think in some ways is a good way to be it is in in politics because I I think for me listening to people criticize on a constant basis it's easy but give me a solution all the time you know it takes it takes a brain cell maybe to give a solution even going to I mean even going to talk to other ministers and so on when we were when the assembly was working and so on I always tried to write to them and say this is the problem my constituent has yeah this is what we'd fix it for them yeah could you do this or is there an alternative that you have that might fix it because i just think if you offer people nothing but criticism the tendency for them is to be defensive Mm -hmm. if you offer them a way out the tendency is for them to listen more carefully to what the issues are and Mm -hmm. to try and find a way to fix it Mm -hmm. so i think how you approach your politics matters in terms of outcomes but when I, the first time I ever got involved in politics and it wasn't even really involved, it was, I had an issue at Queen's with my grant. I was one of those lucky students, charmed times 
who was actually paid to go to university. So we actually got a, le- a, a grant to live on, yeah. as well as our fees paid. And I remember I had a problem with it because I was really struggling at the time financially. And I had gone to the local MP and hadn't heard anything back. And I mentioned it to somebody who sang in the church choir with me, Maureen McConnell. And Maureen worked in Alliance Party headquarters mm-hmm. um, as secretary. And she was John Alderdice's PA, basically. Okay. And she said to me, give it to me and I'll give it to John. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, and she was like, give it to me and see. And from having kind of been knocking my head against a brick wall with the Education Library Board and not getting anywhere, John picks up the phone and suddenly they pay attention and it was sorted. Absolutely. And for me, it was £400 a year that I was entitled to that I hadn't been getting. But it was £400 a year that better, paid bills. Better in your pocket. Yeah, well, it paid bills. I yeah. mean, it was literally for like electricity and stuff at mm-hmm. home. Well, you know, it was, it was necessary stuff. Yeah. And so that was the first time I really thought, oh, this politics <laughs> might be a good thing mm-hmm. in terms of getting stuff done. Mm-hmm. Um, when I graduated, it was 1994. So the first ceasefires mm-hmm. had just right. come about then. And the year before, in 1993, I will always remember um, the Shankel bombing right through that whole week to Greystein. Yeah. And there were many things that happened during the course of the Troubles and after the 1990s that were horrendous, but that period of time just felt grim. Every day, it was just more and more and more. And it was as though we were just descending into a pit and we were never going to come out. And there was a rally in the town for peace. And that was the first time I ever went to a political rally. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I was 21, 22. Mm-hmm. And I just remember, I'm still living on the Newton Arch Road, and I just remember thinking, this can't go on any longer. Mm-hmm. Um, it has to stop. Like, there were ordinary people like me living on the opposite side of the road by a fluke of birth and mm-hmm. nothing else, yeah. who our lives were completely different we were supposed to be sworn enemies um just by dint of where we were born and the whole thing just seemed so ridiculous and people were losing their lives over nothing more than the bar they drank in the road they shopped on it just to me it just felt so wrong and i was going over to queens every every day with people from right across Northern Ireland, from right across Belfast, mm-hmm. all different political opinions and views. And we were sitting in classes together and just getting on with life. Yeah, that's right. And I really, for me, I just thought this this isn't this isn't right because in the vast majority of cases, <clears throat> I think if you are reasonably well off in Northern Ireland, you were slightly insulated from it all. But if you were growing up like I was in a working class community, you were at the coal face, the impact was really direct and the the degree of bitterness and animosity wasn't I think the fault of the people in those communities but I think was something that the politicians kind of were able to live out on Mm -hmm. for a long time and still do and I just felt really let down by politics and so when it came to my first vote um by then I was I think I was graduated but I hadn't I was just before I got married, um, must have been about 95, <clears throat> maybe slightly before, maybe 94. And they came and canvassed my house in Murty Street. Um, 
from uh, the Alliance Party. Mm -hmm. And gentleman called Peter Thompson knocked on my door to ask if I would consider voting Alliance. And I'm sure he had many doors slammed in his face that mm -hmm. night because it wouldn't have been strong alliance territory. Mm -hmm. But he was knocking doors, which I think matters. Mm -hmm. um, and I think he got a bit of a surprise because when he came to my door, I said, actually, I would be really interested and I'd maybe be interested in getting involved. So he came back the next night with a membership form <laughs> and the rest, you say, is history. Is history. Yeah. But it was never my intention to run for election or anything yeah. like that. Yeah. I was just going to pay my money and hope that other people would fix it because mm -hmm. by then I'd already decided that I did want to stay in Northern Ireland when I graduated. Mm -hmm. um, Michael and I were just getting married in 1995, so... We were just kind of at that stage where we were starting to put down roots and thinking, well, are we going to go away, yeah. as a lot of people did, or yeah. are we going to stay? And we decided we wanted to stay, but we wanted to try and make a difference. Yeah. We wanted things to change because I think both of us felt, particularly, I think, after the experience of kind of integrated education, which is what you get at university, mm -hmm. that there was so much wrong we're with gonna, the way we're gonna touch yeah, on that the whole one. way we'd yeah. grown up in these very segregated communities I mean Michael in a much more affluent part of East Belfast than me mm -hmm. but every bit as segregated as yeah. where I was growing up um, and I think we just felt there's something here needs to change if we're really going to see yeah. people's lives turn around um, I never expected I would be this hands on doing mm -hmm. it but regardless every, yeah, every journey are. starts with a small step Absolutely. so <laughs> that was my small step Right, um, I did say at the start of this um, interview, Naomi, that it was going to be a two-part. So I'm going to end this first part with a very easy question mm -hmm. for you. What's wrong with politics here? What's wrong with politics here? Oh, where to start? <laughs> That's not an easy question. I think what's wrong with politics here is not that different to what's wrong with politics everywhere else. Okay. I think politics, particularly at the moment is increasingly partisan mm -hmm. and it isn't to me about finding consensus and solutions it is about laying blame and demeaning the opponent mm -hmm. and i understand that you've got to win elections to be able to have influence mm -hmm. so this is not about i mean i don't think anybody who looks at high engagement politics would say you know, that I'm a soft touch or that I'm not willing to put it up to people. I am willing to challenge people very directly about what they say and do. Mm -hmm. And I, that's part of my role. But I'm also willing to sit down with those same people and try to find a way forward and try to find consensus. Yeah. And I think that if you look at the kind of Trump dynamic in politics, mm -hmm. we're seeing it increasingly fall apart now in Westminster where we're realigning along these very kind of nationalistic, kind of jingoistic um, political lines, which aren't really delivering for people other than delivering chaos. But there are people who think that that chaos is an advantage to them. Mm -hmm. And I, I think in Northern Ireland, we have had this very traditional divide. Um, I mean, I think the border question has been the main cleavage in Irish politics for generations i mean since basically since partition it defines politics largely in the republic of ireland and it defines politics completely here mm -hmm. and i suppose from my point of view i want to get to a point where regardless of people's 
position around the border question. Mm-hmm. We can find consensus on the stuff that matters to people because I think it's in finding that consensus and that ability to work through our shared problems that we start to be able to have the confidence in each other then to talk about the harder issues. Yeah, very good. So that would be, I suppose, if I was to say what key issue, I think it's the partisan nature of politics. It's deeply divided and partisan. I think it is increasingly um, devoid of focus on solving problems. And I suppose the third element of it, if I'm being honest, is that I don't think facts and evidence count for enough. Okay. I go back to Can my engineering. Yeah, I go back to my engineering thing and evidence-based politics is about looking and saying what is the best thing we can do based on all of the evidence for the people we represent. Not what is my ideology and how does it drive me in this situation. But your ideology is important. Mm-hmm. I believe sharing matters, so I'm going to favor shared facilities. Yeah. But I'm going to want to see what is the evidence in any circumstance that that's the way forward. How do we, you know, how do we know that we're doing the right thing? We do it by measuring it and making sure that it's delivering what we wanted. I think too much now, people just say stuff that isn't true. It doesn't get fact checked. It doesn't get challenged. People make claims that things are good or bad with nothing to back it up. And I think some of the lack of robustness that we see around that challenge of evidence, people's facts and understanding actually makes politics cheapened. So when I see the likes of Boris Johnson or others having their arguments about Brexit, I don't mind those who know their stuff about Brexit mm-hmm. arguing the case to leave based on facts. Mm-hmm. But those people don't really exist. Yeah. <laughs> what exists are people who sell people a nostalgic dream. Mm-hmm. A kind of a let's go back to when things were perfect mm-hmm. and I think that affects our politics too yeah. actually on both sides of the divide you know the kind of everything from the kind of a nation once again to if only it was like the 50s when unionists were all in charge mm-hmm. but it's that idea that you can go back to some halcyon days when everything was okay and the truth is everything was not okay or we would never have ended up exactly. where we are now That's so how to me the evidence stuff is about being progressive about looking to the future but also basing it on what we think will actually work for people and i think if we fix those things in our politics here we could have much more rational reasonable but productive discussions for communities. Naomi, was it three, four months ago you called for every party to get back around the table in Stormont yep. and you kind of tried to kickstart, shall I say, yes. what Karen Bradley has been trying to do or not trying, not to, trying do. to do. Exactly. Um, I suppose I don't expect you to hang any political party out to dry, but I suppose can you sum up for us why didn't your efforts why didn't they work well i wouldn't say they haven't first of all i haven't written it off i think they haven't worked yet and i think some of that is due to impending elections i think people find it very difficult Mm -hmm. to engage in political discussion at a time when they're also engaged in the political dogfight that elections often are okay so i think that's one of the things that was imminent i think brexit has made it impossible for parties to kind of set it to one side and engage because every time we try to have the conversation and it doesn't include Brexit 
you very quickly end up back at Brexit again because yeah. it, it impinges on every part of life it here does. and it affects people's perceptions. And I think until the dust settles on Brexit, it's very hard to know where people's views and opinions will lie on a whole host of issues. You know, so I think that uncertainty with Brexit has polluted the mm. political narrative. So you'd still be hopeful whenever in six months time that I'm always to get hopeful. us back. I'm always hopeful. Yeah. I'm an optimist at yeah. heart. So I believe that there are solutions to problems. Mm-hmm. I think we can fix these things, but there has to be a will and there has to be a way. Mm-hmm. I think the will is weak at the moment because I think parties at the minute are, are hedging their bets because there's so much uncertainty and the way isn't clear because, again, a lot of uncertainty, but also nobody driving it. Mm-hmm. And so partly what we were trying to do was twofold. First of all, we put forward proposals for change. Things like reform of the assembly, change to the petition of concern, yeah. and all that kind of stuff that would deal with some of the issues that were that, that were contentious, um. But also we put forward sort of mechanisms to get the talks going. So an independent chair, somebody who has the time that Karen Bradley frankly doesn't, mm-hmm. to actually invest in a talks process yeah. and to drive it forward and mm-hmm. take control of it because, you know. And again, yeah. that, that's appealing to all parties Absol- as well. Absolutely, we need that um, <clears throat> independence. Now, some of the parties are sceptical about getting an independent chair in, and I understand that. But at the end of the day, we've tried everything else and it hasn't worked. So my argument would be, if all else has failed, what harm could it do? Exactly. And the other thing then that we had suggested was either to have some kind of parallel assembly, um, not to just sit and have empty debates, but the committees would sit to give advice to the civil service. Yeah. Now, I understand that... And get font and flow and well, stuff like yeah, this. But the jeopardy there, obviously, is um, nationalism in particular is nervous about being seen to go back into some assembly that isn't that has no authority and no ministers. And I understand the sensitivities of that. The, the difficulty is that if we're not talking about those issues and we're not offering advice to the civil servants, things are not getting done. Yeah. And also... There are lots of MLAs who, after the 2017 elections, have never sat in the Assembly. They have no idea what it's like. And I just remember back in 2003, when I was elected to the Assembly, we didn't sit as a proper Assembly until 2007. Mm -hmm. It was a four-year suspension. But for about a year before that, we did sit in transitional form. And it helped, you think? Well, the committees helped because we were able to take some of the issues and work through them in committee format mm-hmm. and start to probe things that were going on and look at things. I mean, committees in the Assembly have power to do things like legislate. Um, so we know there were pieces of legislation there that were almost ready to, to come to the chamber. I would have no problem with the Assembly sitting in plenary and committee chairs bringing legislation on behalf of departments. Mm-hmm. We would debate them and whatever and get them through. I just think that would allow things to start moving. Yeah. Um, and it would also re-engage politicians in the political process that we were elected to. I think in Northern Ireland, we have a lot of people who have been elected purely because of their stance around a negotiating table. Mm-hmm on be it on the border or brexit or whatever it is so they get elected as as negotiators Mm -hmm. but when push comes to shove they're not great legislators Mm -hmm. they're not great ministers Mm -hmm. we've seen the weaknesses exposed some of them were systemic problems but some of them were to do with people who 
didn't have the skill set mm-hmm. to yeah. run their department and to do all the things that needed done. Yeah. And so I actually think that we need to get a cohort of politicians in and used to the assembly who are thinking about it in terms of how it can deliver and the power that it has to actually change things mm-hmm. rather than just seeing it as a debate in chamber for the green versus orange stuff which too often it ended up being um just, in its previous kind of in its previous demise that never gained traction i would still be hopeful that an independent chair with a proper intensive talks process could go somewhere and we've actually put out a paper on governance in the assembly so things that we think will be raised when we finally get to the point where we see um the report um from the rhi inquiry are areas where we know more openness and transparency and accountability are required we have put out a paper suggesting issues that we think could be debated and fixed around that we've sent it to all the parties and i would be hopeful that we will be able to get back around the table and have that conversation Mm -hmm. um, about how we start to fix it. Because at the end of the day, whatever the long-term position with Northern Ireland, the Assembly plays an absolutely vital role um, in in the Good Friday Agreement and the structures um, in relation to that. And it's important that we don't lose focus on that um, simply because of all of this other pressure. I think had the Assembly been there now, we would be in a much stronger position with respect to getting our voice heard on Brexit, to getting our opinions heard, to getting preparedness at civil service level, because we would have been able to start to take the initiative a little bit. We have been really hampered by not having that chamber. I also think it would have, in all likelihood, moderated some of the more extreme opinions on either side because we would have had the DUP and Sinn Féin in an executive seeking as they did when Martin McGuinness and Arlene wrote to the Prime Minister at the very beginning of Brexit, seeking some kind of agreed position. And that agreed position was a much softer Brexit Mm -hmm. than the one that we've seen some of the DUP MPs chasing Mm -hmm. down at Westminster. Had the Assembly been there, we may have been able to pursue that more actively and aggressively as an assembly and being able to have some influence yeah. um, on, on the discussions. <clears throat> We've been denied that chance. Mm-hmm. I think that's unfortunate, but I still think there's a vast amount of work that the assembly needs to do and I want to see it back up and running as soon as possible. Okay. Okay, folks, thanks for listening to part one of our podcast with Naomi. In part two, we'll be discussing a new Ireland amongst other subjects. Thank you very much.